Hi, folks. Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so um, we have some a couple new people here, so bear with us. You can see this is part 17, talking about the Sea of Galilee. So we've gone this, what's well, actually 18 weeks in a row. If I say something and you feel like, what is he talking about? Probably something that has been said in the past 17 weeks. I try to make every lesson its own little lesson. So God willing, I, I won't lose you too much. I don't think I will. We've been exploring all of the different people groups around the Sea of Galilee, and then for the past four weeks in a row, we've talked about the Zealots, kind of built up this context of what the Zealot party was and how influential they were in the first century, and today is going to be Zealot conclusion. We're going to conclude with the events of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and this idea of baseless hatred. Baseless hatred is hatred for no reason. You hate somebody, they haven't done anything to you. It's one thing if somebody betrayed you personally, you know them personally, they've done something to you personally to have hatred in your heart. It's a whole other thing that simply hate when nobody's actually done anything to you. And this is going to be one of the conclusions of, of the rabbinical thought of what happened in, by 66 AD in the war. So we'll talk about this idea of baseless hatred and then. We always want to compare that to Jesus' ministry and what he taught. So, again, the background picture is going to be that Temple Mount. That's Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount. The wall that's lit up is the Western Wall because this was destroyed. And ultimately, God's house, God's temple, sat right there where that mosque is today. And in 66 AD, a war kicked off by 70 AD. The Romans destroyed the temple, the Temple Mount, and I'll show you a couple other things that we know archaeologically that they destroyed. But that's our background picture because it fits with what ultimately, the actions of the Zealots ultimately led to war. So I want to start today using a piece of scripture as kind of our, our, our overview is, I put this on your sheet, it's from Psalm 133. Verse 1, Psalm 133 is only three verses long. You guys are probably all familiar with this. But it talks about the love between brothers, or verse 1, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. How important is that to God that his children get along? Very important. So it's, if you think about, as a, if you're a parent and you have children, even if you're not a parent without children, you can probably conceptualize this. Parents enjoy it when a child says, I love you to them. That's nice. Just like we say, I love you to God. But parents love it more when the children say, I love you to each other. And the children get along. And that warms a parent's heart different Right? So we can say, I love you to God all day long, but if I look over the person next to me and have hatred in my heart, well, then God's not happy about that. So God wants us on the horizontal level 
to get along. And Psalm 133 encapsulates that. But we'll start with this, we'll end with this, and I just want you to think about how important it is to God that his people get along. And all we have to do is look outside and realize that that doesn't always happen. And one of the main problems, by the first century, Judaism is becoming fractured. You're getting what we call sectarianism. One sect after another sect after another sect, and those sects start competing. So the, the Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees. The Essenes didn't like the Sadducees. The Zealots really didn't like the Sadducees. So you uh, basically, not a lot of people like the Sadducees. Okay, so uh, question was, uh, what was the basic philosophy of the Sadducees compared to the others? So number one, big distinction, no afterlife for the Sadducees. Now, it's real easy. They happened to be in power. Sadducees were the priestly class. So uh, sometimes referred to as the priestly aristocracy or Sadducean aristocracy. The priests had become very wealthy. Well, according to your Old Testament, are the priests supposed to become wealthy? No, they're supposed to rely on the, on the gifts of the people. They're never supposed to have land. They don't get allotted land, and they're not supposed to be wealthy, yet they became wealthy and powerful. Now, what happens when a group becomes wealthy and powerful and then says, oh, by the way, uh, sorry, no afterlife? It's like, well, it's easy when you're at the top to say there's no afterlife because the afterlife is about justice. If there's injustice in this world, God's got to balance the scales. And so resurrection is in part justice, so that when, if somebody is corrupt in this world, there will be a punishment in the next, even if they get away with it in this world. So the Pharisees said, no, there is an afterlife, and there's a resurrection, and God will judge the wicked, and God rewards those who are obedient. Well, that's, that's our philosophy today with Christianity. And so part of the reason why you can stand in the face of corruption is you know that God is a just God, and God will hold all people accountable. So that's one of the main distinctions that the, uh, the Sadducees, a lot of people didn't like that idea of no justice in the afterlife. Did that answer your question? Okay. All right, so we'll get, we'll get to this conclusion about the zealots and baseless hatred, but baseless hatred is developing uh, the hatred for people for no reason. So they not only hated the Jews, they would split amongst each other. You know, if you have a group of people that have a, carry a lot of hatred, they'll turn on each other very quickly. If you're in that group, you'll quickly get turned upon if you don't go exactly along with everybody. So baseless hatred becomes very difficult, obviously, to live with. Actually, we did this class maybe uh, nine months ago, nine, ten months ago. So this is going to be a re reiteration of something we've done in the past, but when we do it this way, I'm going, to bring it, I'm going to bring it to you through the lens of the zealots. The last time we did it, um, I mentioned the zealots, but we hadn't, we hadn't spent a lot of time talking about them. So if you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the old city in Jerusalem, and in the Jewish quarter, and this is very close to the Temple Mount, there's a hill that would look down into a valley right next to the temple, and that upper city was where all the, Sadduce the priests lived, the Sadducean party. And if you go there today, you're walking down the street, there's a gray door right there, and this is a museum. It's called the Burnt House. 
Now, just based off of the name, what do you suppose the museum is? A burnt house. It was a house that was burnt, yes. So the Burnt House Museum is a house from 70 AD. When the Romans destroyed the temple, then they went and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They went to the upper city and they lit everything on fire. And so here's a house that they found in, I think, 1967 as they were going in and rebuilding in Jerusalem. And we even know the family that lived there. So right there it says, Bait Katros. So Bait is house, the house of Katros. And I'll show you in a minute. The reason we know that the Katros family lived there, which, by the way, the Katros family is a priestly family. We have writings that mention the Katros family. Is that we find things with their name on it. Archaeologically, you find things that have the name Katros. So if we go inside that museum, you descend below. It sits about 18 feet below street level today. So you go down like you're going into a basement, and that's their house. So you have uh, a few rooms. This is only showing a a couple of the rooms. There's more of the house in the back. Coins. So obviously, a lot of archaeological things can be, they date layers by coins, the coins that they find. So they found coins, they found jewelry, and this is a stone weight. And so you go to the market and you have your weight so that you can measure out what you're buying. And that one has the name Katros on it. And then finally, they found a Roman spear. Also, they found bones of a approximately 25-year-old woman in the house. And the house has layers of ash, so we know that it was burnt, and a Roman spear point. So this is what ultimately, this is what let the, the zealot movement pushed and pushed and pushed until there was a war. And what we ended up with was destruction and death. So our conclusion again is, now this is the conclusion of the rabbis later as they look back on this period, baseless hatred. But here's what happened. The the zealots pushed and pushed and pushed, and I'll show you a timeline in a minute. For a good hundred years, they're pushing for a war. That's what we mentioned. They want Jesus to lead them in a war, to get rid of Rome, just like Moses led Uh, against Pharaoh. God can do it again, just like the Maccabees rose up against the Seleucid Greeks. God can do it again. Come on, Jesus, lead us into war. You can raise the dead. You can feed 5,000. Look at the logistics and all of that. It's amazing. If you're a logistics officer, you love food that just shows up out of nowhere. Okay, so here's a quick timeline. What I'm going to do is start from the time Rome entered into the scene, 63 BC, so up to 70 AD. So this is very close history to those first century Jews, and right in the middle of this is when Jesus shows up. And this is what we've talked about for the past four weeks now, is many of these events. So we started out You know, when Rome came in, they were oppressive. Rome did not show up nice, right? They show up at the Roman boot, and then they oppress with taxes. And if you couldn't pay your taxes, they took your land. Now, how would you feel if you're a farmer, and suddenly a foreign power comes in and steals your land? Might that drive you to a revolutionary-type mindset? Sure, it might drive a lot of people that way, to take away their... So... Shortly after Rome, you start getting uh, resistance movements. And in 47 BC, 
Now, this is Herod the not-so-great. He hasn't, he's not Herod the Great yet. He's a governor of Galilee, and he kills one of, he puts to death one of the leaders, Hezekiah. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. Herod put to death Hezekiah, and of course, anytime you put to death a revolutionary leader, what happens to the movement? It increases. Well, it'll, it'll, people become more zealous right now. They, it might disperse them for a while, but it's not like they forget that you martyred one of their people. Okay, so you have Hezekiah. We mentioned a, an event at Mount Arbel. I showed you that picture of Mount Arbel with all the caves and how they weren't really officially zealots yet, but the, the tax evaders and the rebels had gone up into those caves, and then Herod the Great is now the king of the Jews using Roman power to yank you out of the cave and so you fall to your death. Nice thing for the king to do shortly after taking office. But he's going to put down any resistance. And of course, that drives the zealots to even more frantic behavior. Then we have Herod's death, 4 BC. And I, we mentioned a few weeks ago when we were at the city of Sepphoris, there's a guy named Judas the Galilean. He's mentioned in the book of Acts, in Acts 5. Judas the Galilean attacked Sephorus and stole all the weapons. So now they were armed with Roman weapons. Then you have in 6 AD, there's another revolt. Again, Judas the Galilean, or Judas from Gamla, leads a revolt, and now he's put to death. That's, that's what the book of Acts is actually talking about. This is all leading up. Now Jesus is alive. He's a young person at this point, and he's alive, living right next to Sephorus up there in Galilee. So he's aware of everything that's happening. And of course, you have somewhere around 30 to 33, Jesus' ministry. And his disciples, and we talked about how those disciples displayed at least a, a, a somewhat of a mindset of a zealot. Not that they were capital Z card-carrying zealots, but that they, Peter cutting off the ear of a, of a priest with a little knife is zealot behavior. So right here, that's what we talked about, the sicari, the assassins. They carry a little knife. They'll cut off the nose, a finger, uh, an ear of a priest because that prevents you from doing your job. It's not, I'll kill you, it's to the pain. I'll cause your life to be painful. It's, it's worse than death. Okay, and then finally, 66 AD show, comes around. The zealots had pushed enough, and a war kicks off. And now you've got full-on war going on, where the Romans are now sending in legions to put down these people who are, and it's guerrilla warfare. It's not nice warfare because there's no standing Jewish army to go head to head. Okay, so this is our history leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And you can see how Jesus' ministry fits smack in the middle of that. And we're going to compare his message to what actually took place. Did they take his message at heart? And of course, they didn't. They didn't like his they didn't like his idea of forgiving the enemy, so they crucified him. Now, I want to introduce you to one character who you know, but you don't know you know. Okay? So, I'll tell you his name. His name is Yosef ben Matiyahu. Yosef, son of Matiyahu. What happened was, once the war kicks off in 66... They've set up provisional leadership in Jerusalem, and they needed a rebel commander up in Galilee. So who do they name as the rebel commander up in Galilee? 
Yosef, right here, he becomes the rebel commander. So he's leading the zealot or rebel movement against Rome. So they assign him right where we've been. Sea of Galilee, all the cities around it that are associated with Jesus, Gamla. So this is all the province of Galilee. And they assign this fellow, Joseph, to Galilee. Now, he gave the Romans a hard time. They tried to catch him and tried to catch him and tried to catch him, and they couldn't. So he's a rebel commander. He's giving them a heck of a time. Well, after a battle, 67 AD now, he's captured by then General Vespasian. Now, for the, not to just throw names at you, but Vespasian will eventually become the emperor. And what happened was, Yosef ben Matiyahu, he says to Vespasian, he pulls a messianic prophecy, he applies it to Vespasian and says, one day you're going to be the emperor. And if you save me, if you don't kill me, I'll help you out. So it seems that Vespasian took this guy in as a slave or even a translator, because you got to translate Hebrew. And he becomes a slave or a servant to Vespasian, and he ends up taking on Vespasian's name, and we know him today as Flavius. Flavius is the name of, the, the, of Vespasian. It's, it's the Flavius family, or the Flavians. Flavian Josephus. I keep quoting him every week. Josephus, the Roman historian, born a Jew. He was a rebel commander. What's, what's interesting is, obviously, if you're Jewish, you weren't a big fan of Josephus. Why? Because you're a traitor. You, gave, you, 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 you went to work for the enemy. When you got captured, you saved your own life to go live in, in Rome and write. Now, what happens later is because Christians saved his writings, Jewish scholars are actually quite thankful that Josephus wrote, because now we have significant history and details that we can go back and help line up. Now, he's not always perfect, but you can get a Josephus book probably for a buck if you go on some kind of used book. They're everywhere, because people will get it thinking they're going to read it, then you can't read it, and you just sell it somewhere for a dollar, because... It's a big book that's taken up space, but okay. So we have somebody that, we, that we're aware of today that was actually part of this rebel movement. Now, what he does is when he paints the picture of what's causing all the problems, he doesn't blame the Jews, he blames the zealots. Josephus wants to make sure that Rome knows that it's this group, it's the bad apples that are causing the problem, not all, the entire Jewish nation. Okay. So he is him, and that's important to note, that when you see Josephus, that's not his born name. So let's talk about baseless hatred. What is baseless hatred? The rabbis, they were looking back on this period, 66 to 70 AD. What caused the war, and why was our temple destroyed? Imagine the crisis of faith that happened. How could God's temple be destroyed? Isn't he strong enough to protect his temple? So they're asking this question, and it's not just why was the temple destroyed once in 70 AD, it was why was the temple destroyed twice? Once in 586 BC, the Babylonians, and the second under the Romans. And this becomes a perplexing question. So the answer that they come up with is baseless hatred. 
It isn't just regular sin, and therefore God's, the, God's covenant moves against the people, because Deuteronomy says, if you sin against this covenant, I'm sending an army against you. They're going to lay siege to your city. It's going to be awful because you weren't paying attention. That, that was the sinning. But then it's like baseless hatred. It's something much deeper. It's a deeper level of... So let me show you at least one quote. So again, we go back to this house. Because this house now, if you go to that museum, the whole thing is representative of how did we get to this point where the city's burned, the temple's gone. What drove us to this point? So if you go down in that museum... They have a movie playing, and it's all about how the zealots are driving everybody into a war. If you don't agree with the zealots, they'll take you out. And they're going to push and push and connive and get the—they want to fight. As you go down the stairs, you enter this, you're descending the stairs, they have these signs along the wall. Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Now, that's one quote. I'm going to show you a different one. So this is one of the signs. It comes from the rabbinic writings. But they're thinking back. What was it that caused this to happen? Why was the first temple destroyed? Because of three iniquitous things that existed there. Idolatry, right? They're worshiping other gods. First temple, 586 BC, Babylonians, right? The Jews are worshiping every other god of all their neighbors. And God's like, stop worshiping false idols. So idolatry, illicit relations, and bloodshed. That's what happens when things become corrupt. So what, what does God do? He's, the, the curses are enacted. An enemy comes, lays siege to Jerusalem, temples destroyed. But then they say, but the second temple, why was it destroyed? And their answer, because of baseless hatred that existed there. Now that's different. Baseless hatred. We hated each other for no reason. Your pure existence is enough for me to hate you. And it becomes, this is a psychological, emotional, spiritual issue that's going to take a significant amount of work to get it to, to work its way out. If it's even, in some sense, redeemable, and it's, it's a very hard thing to redeem. If you've been sinning, God sticks you in timeout for 70 years. Oh, we, you wake up, hey, I'm in timeout, I don't like this. Okay, we'll stop sinning. So they came back to Israel, you know, they're, they're intended on not sinning any longer. They did not want to sin any longer. That's why you get so much of the Pharisees, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. It's this focus. But what happens, you end up with division and hatred amongst groups. So anyways, I just want to show you, this is their interpretation. And then what we want to do is take this and compare it to Jesus. Because what if they had followed his message? He's providing the antidote to baseless hatred, and I think he could see the writing on the wall. If you keep going in that direction, all the stones from this temple are going to be on the ground. So knock it off, people. And they didn't. So if we go back to a short little timeline here, you have Jesus showing up, this is 40 years prior to 70 AD, right? And what's the message? What's the, one of the most prominent pieces to his message is forgiveness. 
you got to love your enemy. You got to pray for those that persecute you. And the mechanism that God gave human beings to release the upsets that are naturally created in human interactions is called forgiveness. If you can't let go of that upset, you'll descend into bitterness, resentment, anger, vengeance. So for instance, let me sh- I'll show you one quote. Don't turn there because we're just I'm watching the time, but this is just one example. Luke 6:37. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. They call it the Sermon on the Plain because he puts it in a wide open space. Jesus says, "Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive and you will be forgiven." Now that's in, it's also yes. The comment was if you harbor bitterness, it'll eat you alive. And that's right. Anger, bitterness, resentment is corrosive to your soul. It actually hurts you more than it's hurting the person that you're bitter at. And the mechanism, the antidote to that is forgiveness itself. Now we yeah, we have to at least have a little bit of understanding why, but Now, what you see here, do not judge or you'll be judged. Don't don't condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. These are all what's called measure for measure. Now, measure for measure, let me make sure I say this. It sounds a lot like karma. If I do this action in the world, it will come back on my head. And we think karma and we go, no, 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 that's that's not one of our theological doctrines. I agree, we don't have that as a high-level theological doctrine. The problem is, it's in every book of the Bible, from the beginning to the end. You will find something like this. In fact, I'll show you the next verse. Jesus calls this measure for measure. It's a Hebrew phrase. Obadiah says, whatever you do to somebody will come back on you. So if you're not forgiven, then Jesus says, or if you won't forgive others, then Jesus says, well, how's how's God going to forgive you? Now, the problem with measure for measure is you have to be real careful. Just because you see someone suffering doesn't mean it's from sin, right? The disciples say to Jesus, hey, that guy's blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? And he's like, whoa, don't take measure for measure. And every time you see someone suffering, think that they've done something wrong. That's the problem with the cross, right? They see a guy hanging on the cross and you assume he must have done something. He must have done something or he wouldn't be hanging there. This must be God's curse. And then you read Isaiah 53 and it says, no, no, no. He's there because of your sin. Oh, the suffering servant takes on the sins of the world. That's different. Yeah, it's a radical shift. So anyways, measure for measure is what you're seeing there. And then let me show you the the rest of the verse here. So 38 goes on, give and it will be given to you. That's another measure for measure. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured out on your lap. And then here's, the, here's the, where Jesus even uses the phrase, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's the same thing as, Peter, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If you live a violent life, then you might just have a violent death. So watch the way you live. If you lie to people all the time, you're probably going to get lied to. So don't lie. If you want to be forgiven, make sure you practice forgiveness. Okay, so let's go back to our little timeline. Well, what happens? He shows up, says, hey, let's forgive everybody. Let's pray for those Romans. 
God will take care of them. You don't need to be the one trying to enact justice right now. Forgive your enemy. Pray for those. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. Because what zealot wants to forgive? Nobody. You know, it's it's really tough when you're like, but look at the injustice. You're like, I know. Don't think that you're going to somehow fix the world. That's not your job. It's God's job to do that. So what happens is, by 70 AD, you end up in what the rabbis call baseless hatred. So you can see the whole thing's descending into chaos. It's more division. It's now we're going to bring out knives and start stabbing you if, if we don't even like you, even though you're a Jew, you're not even a Roman. So it's just interesting to me that Jesus shows up with the antidote to basic hatred and they reject it. And it's very common in the human existence to reject the thing you need if you don't feel like forgiving. All right, let me show you one quote. I did put this on your sheet, I believe. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, may his memory be a blessing. He passed away last November, was the chief rabbi of uh, Great Britain. And he has some amazing, amazing books. Check them out. But this is a quote from one of his books, Covenant and Conversation, and it's about forgiveness. And he says, when people lack the ability to forgive, they're unable to resolve conflict. The result is division, factionalism. This is what was happening in Jesus' day. Every group would splinter. Now, you can't imagine a religious, a, a religious organization, or like, let's say a religious uh, denomination. We all believe in one thing, like Jesus, but we divide on this, these minuscule details, right? When do you baptize? When do you not baptize? Who gets to do what? You know, is there, is, is there predestination or no predestination? Now, we all believe in the same God, and we're all following Jesus, but we'll divide over the smallest of things. And that throughout the history of, our chur- of the church, it often ended in fragmentation, right? Fragmentation of a nation into competing groups and sects. That's what happened in Europe. And then they'd fight each other over who's correct. So competing groups and sects, that's the first century. And once those sects get embedded and start fighting each other for power, well, you forget that you're all following the same God. Okay, so my, the, the point for this, though, is this is what's happening in the first century, and it can happen anywhere. And the moment you can't forgive, you'll start fighting. And you can't get past a little mi- these minor differences. Those who seek freedom must learn to forgive. That's it. It's the freedom, or I'm sorry, forgiveness is the oil that, that allows relationships to function. And once you give that up, well, you can create some kind of crazy situation here on earth because of what can happen. All right, so what's the power of forgiveness? Jesus shows up with that message, but is it, is it his own idea? Had they never heard of forgiveness before? Well, no, of course not. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, what I want to show you, there's a foundational piece to the Bible that has to do with forgiveness. And we often miss this, partly because it's in our Old Testament and it's difficult to read and we're not sure what message they're sending us. 
like it's a, some kind of cruel joke that God gives you the book of Numbers to have to read through. And you're like, you know, is this a test? Do I have to go through this every year? There's a foundational message of forgiveness within the Bible. Where does it come from? Well, it's in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a foundational book. It lays the foundations for all the other books. And there is a message of forgiveness that's extraordinarily powerful if we have eyes to see in Genesis. So if we look at Genesis, it's kind of a crazy book, right? Nobody would ever start their religion with a book like Genesis. You don't because you wouldn't write all the horrible things your people are doing to each other. The human nature is to only give you the nice things, make everyone look out to be heroic. So what you see in Genesis, from the beginning of Genesis to the end, are families. From Adam and Eve, the first couple, all the way out till uh, Joseph and his brothers. It's one family after the next. So it's all about relationships. And thankfully for all of us today, it's all about dysfunctional relationships. Because we look out the world and we think, well, we're not doing that great. Well, neither are the people in Genesis. I mean, it's like, it's all dysfunctional relationships. That's why you... No normal person would start the Bible with a book about dysfunctional relationships. But that tells you something, right? God understands what he created. The creator knows his creation. But at the, at the heart of it, Genesis is a story of brothers. This is, where, this is what the, all of the main stories in Genesis are stories of brothers and their relationships. How wonderful it is when brothers get along, isn't it? Okay, let's go to Genesis. Let's see. How did they do, or who were they, right? So you start with Cain and Abel. You have Shem, Ham, and Japheth from uh, Noah's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. And then you end, chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers. Now, any strained relationships in there? Yeah, like every single one is a strained relationship, right? So what we want to do is we want to look at these relationships and say, how did they end? Well, we look at the first one, Cain and Abel. How did it end? Murder. One brother kills his brother. Can you imagine more chaos in a family? The depth of, I mean, I think it's like nine verses of of Cain and Abel. It's the depth of of that story is insane. Cain and Abel ends in murder. You get, you get the story of, of Noah's sons. And at the very end, what happens is there's a cursing. Something happens. Ham upsets his father. There's a cursing. And he says, you are going to be a slave to your brothers. Is that how life is supposed to be? No. So there's, there's a curse and there's slavery. You get Isaac and Ishmael. There's a strained relationship. They don't like each other. But they end up, what happens is, they end up at Abraham's uh, funeral, and there's a reunion. Now, the thing is, the Bible never shows them talking. They don't talk, and they don't embrace. But they're together. They're back, with their, they're, they're, they're back at their father's funeral. Then you have Jacob and Esau. Hey, we're getting better. Watch this. It's a reunion, and they embrace. Now, they don't they don't quite live right back to each other. They say, okay, you go on that side of the river and live, and I'll stay on this side of the river and live. And fences make good neighbors, and as long as we have a good fence, we'll get along. But they embrace, and you can see what's happening as we get to Joseph and his brothers. 
that things are improving. The ending of each relationship is slightly better than the last. Like there's a progression happening. Then we get to Joseph and his brothers. And this is one that just most people don't know. It's such a small detail. How does, the, how do, how does Joseph and his brothers end? How does the story end? Forgiveness. That's the message. Joseph had every right to be upset. His brothers sold him into slavery. And he was in power. He could have easily exercised that power and put them to death. What did he do? He chose to forgive. And that is going to be significant in the life of this newborn people group. So it's so cool to see that there's a progression of the writing and and the relationship between brothers. And the powerful thing is that you end with forgiveness. Now, here's what happens. You have Genesis 50. It's the last chapter in Genesis. Go back and read it. It's the very last chapter. And you have a dysfunctional family. It's 12 brothers who don't get along, right? But that you turn the page to Exodus chapter 1, and you realize you have a nation. What was the only thing that was introduced in the book of Genesis in chapter 50? Forgiveness. Period. Now, you say, now, wait a minute. It doesn't explicitly say that. I know, but that's not how Genesis is written. Everything's underneath the surface. And you say, the very first time in, in, uh, in Jewish thought, it's what's called first principle or first use. The very first time you see the concept used is by God's definition, how you should look at that idea. So the very first time you find the concept of forgiveness in Genesis is Joseph and his brothers. And why does Jesus show up then into the same Jewish nation preaching forgiveness? Because that's the message for the nation. A house divided cannot stand. So it's so cool. It's the only thing. It's called first principle, first use. At some point, we'll talk about the first time love shows up in Genesis. It's awesome when you read then the book of John. So, okay. So look at, you, you get this. This is another way to look at it. Cain. Cain is clearly upset with his brother. He murders him. And he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And what's the answer? Yes, you are. You know, do I have responsibility towards my brother? Yes. Sure, you have rights. But you also have the responsibility to forgive people. And not allow yourself to be carried away into a murderous rage. So yes, you are are your brother's keeper. All of us are our brother's keeper in some sense. So that Joseph shows up and he answers the question in a literary type way. Yes, that question that was asked at the beginning of the book, I'm showing you. I'll take responsibility for the lives of my brothers. How? Forgiveness. And because of that forgiveness, a dysfunctional family becomes a nation. Massive transformation. Just from the power of, just from forgiveness. Okay. It's really incredible the way uh, Genesis is written. So there's a biblical message of forgiveness. Jesus is going to show up, right? He's going to show up. Uh, Joseph is a type of Messiah. Now, he's not the Messiah. He's the suffering servant. He's a Messiah in the sense that he delivered a nation, right? So that's Joseph. Jesus shows up. He's the Messiah. He's the suffering servant, and they carry the same message. 
that the path to peace in the kingdom of God is through forgiveness, not power. So it's the same, they have the same exact message, and we don't often connect Jesus with the story of Joseph, but they're two types of Messiah. In the first century, you had Messiah, son of David. Was the Messiah going to be Messiah, son of David, a warrior? Or was he going to be Messiah, son of Joseph, a suffering servant? And what was Jesus? Suffering servant, but he's also going to be the king that one day will judge. So he's, in a sense, he's a little bit of both. Okay, power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the, the oil that, lub, that lubricates all relationships. So I'm just going to show you this. It's on your sheet so you can read it because we know only one half of the commandment, right? Jesus, Jesus says this is the second commandment to, God, to loving God is to love your neighbor. But we only know the second half of part B of the commandment, right? So if we go to Leviticus 19.18 is what Jesus is quoting, it starts out like this. You shall not take vengeance. Now, what is presupposed if you're about to take vengeance? Somebody did something to you, meaning somebody created an upset. Someone betrayed you. I'll take vengeance. Someone, you know, kicked your dog. I'll take vengeance. So vengeance presupposes that somebody else did something to you. Do not, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Same thing. What does that presuppose? Somebody upset you. And notice bearing a grudge. It's even the, the idea of a weight. It's the bearing of a weight. That's what upset feels like. It feels like a, a spiritual weight. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of the sons of your people. Now, I make sure I wrote that out more literally. Sons of your people. Because where does forgiveness begin? Right next door to you. Really close right? The people who are closest and who are most likely to hurt you. Okay, but, now that's the first part of the sentence, but what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to, you shall love your neighbor. Now, neighbor, who, in this context, who's the neighbor? Well, see, we want, and I agree with you that it's everybody. We want to say it's everybody in the whole world. No doubt, that's what God wants. But it's really the practicality of saying, boy, that guy over there in Myanmar, I am not upset with him at all. You know why? Because he's in Myanmar and you're over here. But if that guy in Myanmar moves next door to you and, tr and trashes up your lawn and his dogs run in your backyard, you're going to be upset now with the guy from... So it's like, it always starts with who's closest to you. If you can't forgive the neighbor right next to you, the odds of you forgiving the guy halfway around the world is zero. You just don't have any reason to be upset with him yet. But just wait, they'll give you a reason to be upset. So we're supposed to love our neighbor. And we notice here, God doesn't give you a reason. He just says, because I'm God, just go do it. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we move from vengeance to bearing a grudge all the way down here to loving your neighbor? What's the mechanism? Forgiveness. That's exactly right. It's implicit in the commandment. And we miss that because we only know the second half of the commandment. Loving God, loving your neighbor is akin to loving God, because whose image is your neighbor made in? God's image. That's how you love God, love your neighbor. So this is central. And, you know, as a church, the church, what we need to do, and I think personally, and I try to do this, and I am completely fail all the time at this stuff, 
You need to, it, it isn't just intellectually knowing you should forgive. It's embodying forgiveness. Practice forgiveness every day at any little upset, any baseless hatred that you might find in yourself. Now, that's tough. It's hard work because sometimes we feel justified to be angry. But you need to practice it because if you don't practice it and then the situation comes up where you actually need to do it, what are the odds you're going to have the skill set to forgive? Well, again, it's going to start getting close to zero. So this is something the church needs to be demonstrating, and we should all know how to do practically if we want to show the witness of Jesus in the world. That's just my opinion. Sorry if I offended anybody. Please forgive me if I've offended you. Okay, so what's the psalm? How pleasant or wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers get along. That's the, that's, it's a central message to, to the Bible. That's how you bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, is you're going to have to go through these, these, this process. So, okay. We need to watch out for baseless hatred, even in ourself. Search yourself, as the psalm says, or God, search me. Show me anywhere I might be, have baseless hatred that I'm not paying attention to. And of course, that ends our little study of the zealots, and at least for now, the Sea of Galilee, because what we need to do is finish Mark. So for those on the video, this class, we started Mark almost four years ago, and we still have one last thing to do, which is the crucifixion, and we'll, we're going to do that over the next two weeks. So. That is Sea of Galilee. Let me stop the share. For everybody on Zoom, the comment was, it's about, for, it's about giving up your principles of forgiveness. And I, so the one reason I don't think that's, if you watch somebody do something that upsets you, you personally can say, look, I'm going for- to choose not to become angry, bitter, resentment- resentful. And the reason you can do that is because we have a God who will hold them accountable. Forgiveness doesn't mean you throw justice out the window. You can have both. You can forgive, and at the same time, justice still be enacted. So you don't have to sacrifice a principle to forgive. You just have to let go. I should have said this. Forgiveness is actually a mechanism of releasing. The word forgiveness in Hebrew means to lift. So you're lifting something off, right? If you feel upset, there's an actual spiritual weight on you. Forgiveness is lifting that weight. That's the Hebrew. It's a lifting. In Greek, the word is to send away. That's, it's two words that uh, I would say them, but I'll probably get them wrong. You put two words together, and in the Greek, it means to send away. So if you're upset with somebody, what you're doing is choosing to send the upset away. That's forgiveness. It's a mechanism of release. And you're only doing that so that you can remain in peace. It doesn't mean you give up justice. It doesn't mean that you give up your principles. It means you give up the anger that's created whenever there's an upset. So it's, uh, we often think, uh, if I forgive, that means they get away with it. Oh, no, God holds you accountable. They don't get away with anything. Yeah, and that's the power of the, the Jesus on the cross. That's the comment. Jesus on the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And it's the demonstration of, in the most extreme situation, that forgiveness is still a powerful act for the individual that's doing the forgiving. And the community should then still be holding people accountable whenever there's an injustice. That's a community issue.
What God doesn't want is individuals to start taking justice into their own hands. That's where things go terribly wrong. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.